You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here, and thank you to all of you who are joining us via Zoom. Welcome. I wanted to address over the next couple of weeks here at Central, the current conflict that's happening um, between Israel and Gaza, because I think it's a great opp- opportunity to discuss the intersection of, well, faith and politics, which we do touch on here a lot, but particularly um, the religious and political components of that very old conflict that's taking place there. And it's a lightning rod issue. Right, how we think and feel about that issue has become a litmus test <laughs> for how you think and feel about justice, about peace. I mean, about so many other important issues. Right, this is why it's such a hot topic. This is why so many of us have an emotional investment in that tiny corner of the world with that, you know, with those two groups of people. It's amazing how the whole world set ablaze and emotionally invested in that. And I think it has a lot to do with, it has a lot to do with a lot, <laughs> but it has a lot to do with, you know, the, this intersection, I think, between faith and politics and um, Western values and in some ways, um, yeah, Western values, Western civilization is sort of on trial. Um, in some ways here as well. Lot, as a, there's a lot going on there. Power dynamics, all of that coming into play. And one of my goals in this today, over the next two weeks, today and next week, is to stimulate a discussion more than anything else. I am not an expert on the complex history and relationship between the Israelis, Jews, Muslims and Arabs and the Palestinians and all of that, I guarantee I don't have all my facts straight. And I'm looking forward to those of you uh, who can correct me to do so. You'll have a chance to do that today, as you always do. My other goal and my main goal is to really give us all a more informed and nuanced understanding of these extremely complex and important matters so that we don't fall prey to the extremists on either side who want us to see their side as purely heroic and virtuous and the other side as purely demonic and evil. That thinking is not only not true, but not a path to lasting peace. With that said, we're gonna look at the history of this land and its occupants today. This is more of a lecture than a sermon. Um, This is a history lesson more than anything else today. Next week, we're gonna look at the religious and theological components of the conflict. It's believed by most scholars that the ancient Israelites probably developed as a distinct Semitic tribe in what is now Palestine about 3,500 years ago. So approximately 1,000 to 1,500 BCE before Common Era. The Israelites, i.e. the ancient Hebrews, were probably one of many Canaanite tribes that occupied that, that region that region pretty much between the Mediterranean Sea, you know, the Jordan River, and maybe a little bit over into what is now Jordan. 
It wasn't until 1000 BCE that Israel and the Jewish people emerged as a, more or less, <laughs> a solidified and distinct culture with its own spiritual traditions that became known as Judaism and its own kind of distinct political structure with cities, etc. This means that the story of the Exodus, you know, the story of Israel, the Hebrews being enslaved in Egypt, being liberated, traveling across the Sinai Peninsula a bit, and then seizing the land of Canaan by force, aka the promised land, conquering the Canaanite tribes there, and you know, victoriously setting up their own, you know, God-given world. That is largely legendary and mythological. Most scholars believe that the ancient Israelites, this the ancient Hebrews, developed out of the Canaanite tribes. They were part of that world. Um, where all these tribes were vying for territory and control. And this one tribe, the Israelites, as we know them, emerged to be one of the more prominent um, civilizations in that area. And so Israel and the Jewish religion developed slowly out of the various Semitic Canaanite tribes of the late Bronze Age, but probably became a distinct nation culture and spiritual tradition sometime between 1500 and 1000 BCE. And 1000 is about when we understand that the kingdoms of Judah and uh, Israel, the twin kingdoms, came into being. Um, from that time until the time of Christ, so for about a thousand years, the Israelites were conquered and dispossessed of their land numerous times by different empires. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, um, let me think about this. The Persians were in there as well, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans, when I believe it was Pompeii conquered that region in 63 BCE. And yet amazingly, astonishing, um, the Israelites survived all of this conquering and tension and the, the, the influx of all these other cultures and empires and civilizations oppressing them, sometimes sending them away into exile and taking them as slaves and laying waste to Jerusalem and reducing it to rubble. The Israelites just kept coming back. Keep in mind, all these other Canaanite tribes, all these other ites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, there was a lot of ites back then, they all disappeared. Where are they today? But the Israelites remained. They kept coming back. However, in the year 70 CE, so now we're in the Common Era, um, Jerusalem was finally besieged and sacked by Rome after years and years of tension. The country was essentially obliterated. The temple was laid waste. And the Jewish people were scattered, largely. This is called the Diaspora. 70 CE, approximately. And it was basically the end of the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. However, even though Israel was essentially destroyed, Jewish communities, pockets of Jewish communities still lived in the land and did so for, the, I mean, forever, for the next two millennia. This land has never been without some Jewish occupants over the last 2,000 years. And yet it needs to be said, that the modern state of Israel, from 1948, that's when it came to exist, the modern state of Israel is not, this is important, it is not the same Israel 
the kingdom of Israel from 2,000 years ago that Rome destroyed. Evangelical Christians and Zionist Jews alike love to claim that modern-day Israel is the same Israel found in the Bible, but it's not. They share the same name, but this is not the same entity. These are two distinct nations, governments, cultures, and peoples, and that's really important to keep in mind. But nevertheless, if we're talking about the Jewish roots in the land of Palestine, and we are, yes, there have been Jews living in that region for approximately 3,000 years, consistently, more or less, along with many other kinds of people. <laughs> they were not the only ones there. They'd never been the only ones there. After the fall of the Roman Empire during the 5th century, the Holy Land came under Christian control for approximately 200 years. This is called the Byzantine Empire. That lasted until the territory fell into Muslim Arab hands in the 7th century and remained under their control for about 400 years. Now, it's important to understand for our purposes today that Islam began as a religion in the 6th century CE, Common Era, and it formed in what is now Saudi Arabia. And it wasn't until the 7th century that they occupied what is, no, what is now known, or as was even then known perhaps as the land of Palestine. And they occupied it for approximately 400 years until in the 11th century, Christian crusaders, you've heard of the Crusades, a blight on church history, if there ever was one. In the 11th century, Christian crusaders sacked Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And basically for 200 years, Christians kind of ran the show over there. Um, until in the 13th century, when Muslims regained control of Jerusalem, surrounding area, and kept it for about 700 years through the Ottoman Turk Empire. Until 1917, when the British took control of the region after World War I. So we just covered, what, uh, a couple thousand years of history in like five minutes there. I am glossing over enormous things here to hopefully take us all on a, on a historical journey that makes sense. It was in 1919 that the League of Nations, which was the predecessor of the United Nations, this is like high school history, right? Um, the League of Nations, gave the, uh, the Brits, the United Kingdom, administrative power over Palestine, along with a mandate, this is 1990, 1919, along with a mandate to, quote, um, create a national home for the Jewish people alongside the Palestinian, Palestinian Arabs who composed the vast majority, the occupants of the land at that time. This mandate immediately led, immediately led, to a succession of protests, riots, and revolts instigated by the Arab community. So here we see that even before the formation of the nation of Israel in 1948, there were great tensions and animosity between the Jewish communities in Palestine and the um, Muslim Arab communities there as well. And I think it's, it's a common misperception and one that I've had actually in the past it's a common misperception that the current climate of, of hate and violence between Israelis and Palestinians began in 1948. No. This has been going on long before that. And prior to 48, 
the power dynamics were flipped. Yes, today Israel is the dominant power in that relationship and wields that power often unjustly. And we'll get to that. But prior to 48, Arab Muslims were the dominant power in the region, and they used their dominance to oppress and harm the small Jewish community that was, that was there. The tensions in the 1920s and 30s really escalated because of the growing Arab nationalist movement, particularly um, because of the immigration that was happening, of Jewish immigrants flooding into Palestine since the late 19th century, actually, there was a growing uh, Jewish Zionism was really taking off and this desire to end the diaspora and return to the land. And so you had this Arab nationalist movement in the 1920s and 30s that was really reacting against this, this growing Jewish community, the growing Jewish immigration into the region. And we'll talk more about Jewish nationalism and Zionism and critique it next week when we get on to the theological religious side. We can talk about that a little bit today in the discussion if you'd like. Um, to be clear, Israeli Jews today are a melting pot of different ethnicities, many of them of Eastern descent, who are descendants of those who inhabited Palestine prior to the 20th century. So Israelis are not all Europeans, yeah, a lot of them are. But during the, the early 20th century, many of them immigrated to Palestine from Europe. And this terrified and angered a lot of Palestinian Arabs who were there at the time. In the 1930s and early 1940s, the Arab nationalist movement really took off because the British appointed leader of Palestine, who was an Arab nationalist, um, got real chummy with the Nazis. He actually would go to Germany, meet with Hitler and other various Nazi officials to discuss how he could import and adopt in Palestine Nazi methods of Jewish control and Jewish annihilation in Palestine. That happened. And he was certainly not as effective as Hitler was. The Brits would never have let him do it as they were running the show. Um... He nevertheless wanted to, quote, solve the Jewish problem in Palestine by, you know, using Nazi methods. He nevertheless was successful in instituting policies that kept the small but growing Jewish population in Palestine as second-class citizens and victims of regular violence. Fast forward to the end of World War II in the late 1940s, when the newly formed United Nations created what was known as a partition plan to hopefully solve the conflict between Jews and Arabs. This partition plan was to turn Palestine into two states, right? a Jewish state and an Arab-Palestinian state, with Jerusalem not being held by either side exclusively. Jerusalem was to be essentially an international trusteeship or held by an international consortium, sort of like a city of the world was the idea. It's largely believed that the UN's partition plan and their desire to create two nations, one for the Jews, one for the Palestinians, that this idea was born out of the Holocaust, that it was essentially this idea born solely out of Western sympathies for the Jewish people after World War II. And yeah, I, th I think that might be part of it. But remember, the League of Nations back in 1919 gave the British a mandate long before World War II, gave them a mandate to create a Jewish state. 
So this idea wasn't simply born out of the Holocaust, as maybe we've been led to believe. But consider how, this is, this is interesting, I think, consider how colonial and arrogant this was of Western European powers and the League of Nations and later in the United Nations. There was something really kind of old school colonial about this idea, this thinking that says, we'll just march into Palestine and tell those Arabs they need to give up vast swaths of their land because we want to have all these other people come in that they hate or have problems with. And it wasn't all Arabs and all Palestinians. So we got to be careful here. This wasn't like all of the Palestinian Arabs hated the Jews and didn't want to live next to them. No, they were living next to them for centuries. There was always these different communities there. And it wasn't, they weren't all at each other's throats. But there's something so colonial about this this Western European power structure coming in saying to these folks, move over. You're not in control. We're in control. And we're telling you who's going to live next year. Give up your land. Let in those who we say to let in. Yeah, I, th I think it's really important to understand that Western interference and Western colonialism plays a big role in what went wrong over there. And continues to. As America, largely, I don't know, just politically, um, has this kind of virtual unwavering support of Israel and continues, therefore, to play a big role in maintaining this conflict. In fact, just this week, I saw that President Biden went and met with Netanyahu and said, I am a Zionist. Um, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, but I am a Zionist. I mean, that's that. This only creates more problems. And it's interesting, it's not, Biden's not a Republican. You know, he claims to be a Zionist. This is a problem, in my opinion. You're free to disagree. Um, so here we see how American Western colonial influence continues to play a role, right? And has. Now, what's interesting is that the United Nations in 48 never formally instituted, never formally imposed this partition plan. I thought they did, but in my studies, I learned that they didn't. It was more or less a suggestion, a recommendation, but it immediately caused civil war because the Jews were jubilant. Oh, the UN's got our back. And the Arabs reacted understandably with, they were very upset. So civil war broke out between Jews and Palestinians in 48, with the Jews gaining the upper hand in the battle, battles, and they, this was known as the first Arab-Israeli war. The Jews gained the upper hand, and they seized a bunch of Palestinian territory real quick, thus dispossessing, displacing approximately a quarter of a million Palestinians, making them homeless, obliterating their, their homes, their livelihoods, sending them into God knows where. That caused war to break out all across. I mean, it caused this... I mean, Israel's neighbors, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Transjordan, Iraq, to essentially unite and attack the newly formed Israeli state in hopes of pushing them into the Mediterranean and annihilating them once and for all. This, again, was called the first Arab-Israeli war. This was 1948. And amazingly, Israel prevailed. The whole world thought Israel's done for. You've got all their neighbors and all, all their borders flooding in with tanks, just to drive them into the sea. And Israel prevailed. 
and actually gained even more territory in the process, thus displacing even more Arab Palestinians and creating more, more tension, more problems, and more trauma, more hatred, more animosity between the sides. Over the next 75 years or so, basically from 48 until now, there have been countless wars and skirmishes and bombings and rocketings and terrorist attacks and all acts of unjustifiable violence by both sides. It's basically been a slow simmering war since 1948 with the occasional eruption of conflict, greater conflict like we see today, which is pretty scary because this could lead to World War III. Um, as we're just, I just read this morning that China's sending ships now over there, just as we have. If Hezbollah gets into it, Iran might jump in. It's pretty scary. Russia is rattling the saber. So here we are. That's basically the history of the land and its occupants and where we're at today. What are the big takeaways from this? Well, in my opinion, one of the biggest takeaways has to do with generational trauma. That's an important term to know. Generational trauma. Oh my gosh. It's like Indy 500 out there. Generational trauma experienced by both sides. One cannot understand what's happening today without understanding the role that generational trauma plays in creating and sustaining the mistrust, the animosity, the hatred, the violence. Generational trauma does not excuse or justify the horrific acts of violence that we're all seeing and have seen, but it does explain it in a way that helps us see both sides, not as subhuman monsters, but as wounded human beings reacting out of legitimate grief and fear, and generations of grief and fear. for being oppressed and abused because of who they are, because of the God they worship. And again, that doesn't justify the violence by any means, but it does help us see both sides as human beings, which is really important, I think, in all of this. In the words of Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg, there is no justification for the mass murder of innocents. There is no justification for bombing a dance festival as Hamas did for kidnapping elders, kidnapping children, kidnapping peace activists, gunning down families, burning houses with people still alive in them, posting the murder of a grandmother on her own Facebook account so that her grandchildren can see it. Hamas's attack was a war crime. Murdering Jewish children is not fighting for human rights. War crimes are not the path to liberation. There is also no justification for Israelis to bomb hospitals, for Israelis to enact illegal blockades that turn tiny strips of land into open-air prisons, for unlawful killings, forced displacement, house demolitions, which have been going on for decades, land theft, abusing children in detention, restrictions on movement, dehumanization and collective punishment, which is what the Israelis have been handing out to the Palestinians for over 55 years of occupation. Open-air prisons, that's basically what Gaza is. 
and so much more. That was a quote from Rabbi Ruttenberg. The other thing I hope you learn from this, this short history lesson today is that the history of Israel and Palestine is a wholly unique set of circumstances and problems that is unlike anywhere else in the world. Why is that important to understand? Because we Americans, and I'm guilty of this too, I, we want to see what's happening there through the lenses we're familiar with, like the lens of the civil rights movement, right, the 1960s, or the lens of the Black Lives Matter movement today, or the lens of looking at the long history of the way the United States government has treated its own indigenous population, the Native Americans. We want to view it through that, or we want to view it through the lens of apartheid in South Africa. Th those are radically, and I mean, yes, there's some similarities, don't be wrong, but those are very different contexts. None of those contexts are like the one between Israel and its Arab neighbors. None of those histories are like the one between Israel and its Arab neighbors. It's, a wholly, un it's wholly unique and comes with its own set of complex religious, cultural, and historical issues. The fact is we don't and cannot understand all that. We can't. And maybe that's the biggest takeaway of all understanding that we don't understand and can't understand because we have no skin in the game. Because we haven't suffered the generational trauma the Palestinians have and many of the Israelis have. That they have grown up in. We haven't grown up there. I didn't grow up there. I didn't grow up experiencing what they experienced. Neither did you. This should be cause for great humility in the way that we form our opinions, in the way that we, you know, quote, choose, pick, pick sides, should be cause for great humility on our part. And I want to finish it, finish and open it up for discussion today by saying this: not all Palestinians are Hamas. Most are not. Not all Palestinians are Muslim. Some are even Christians. And I and I learned this week that those Christian Palestinians say, Alu Akbar, God is great, like the Muslims do, because in Arabic, God's name is Allah. So it's quite Christian to say, Alu Akbar. Not all Jews have been, have been perpetuating injustices against Palestinians, but the Israeli government has been doing so for decades. Left to their own devices without the interference of extremist governments and extremist and fundamentalist religious leaders on both sides, I suspect Palestinians and Jews could live together in relative peace. I want to also say that this is not the same conflict that has continued since the time of Isaac and Ishmael. Maybe you've heard that before. I grew up hearing that. The modern nation of, Is modern nation of Israel, as I said earlier, but it bears repeating, is not the same Israel we find in the Bible. The events today are not the fulfillment of ancient biblical prophecy about the end times. And thinking they are is part of the problem here and, and actually what's generating a lot of the violence on both sides, this, this religious nationalism and this eschatology on both sides, both the Islamic and the Jewish side have this religious nationalism going on and this eschatology along with the evangelicals here in the States that are 
vastly supporting Israel. We'll get into that next week because it's fascinating and it's quite dangerous when we uh, discuss the theological and religious backgrounds of this conflict. But that's what I wanted to say today. And we've got some time to discuss, to critique, to disagree, hopefully respectfully. <laughs> I believe that. Um, but yeah, maybe you don't want to talk about this. That's people are, I don't want to like assume everybody wants to talk about this. I kind of, I resisted actually even talking about this today. I was kicking around for weeks. As soon as this thing broke out, I was like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to, because I don't, I didn't have, and I still don't have all my thoughts and feelings worked out. And the, and there's pressure. There's pressure on the left to choose a side. There's pressure on the right to choose a side and to be very kind of black and white in your thinking. But I hope you hear today and next week that I want to raise the level of complexity here. And, um, but I want to be clear about, I, I feel like in some ways I have taken a stand and chosen side by, in, in the micro, by basically condemning what the, Israel, what, what the Israelis have done to the Palestinians for generations, while also condemning what Hamas has been up to for a long time. But just to say, oh, I'm with Israel, or oh, I'm with the Palestinians, and I stand with this, and I stand with that, it's more complicated than that for me. But the power dynamics are very much in Israel's favor over there and not in the Palestinians' favor. And in, in a way, my sympathies are more with the Palestinians here because so many of them just live under the boot of Israel and have for a long time. And uh, yeah, those are my those are my complicated thoughts. Um, Emily. Hold on, I want to give you a mic so people can hear you online. I grew up in a very Jewish area in the suburbs of Chicago. And um, one of the things that we had there is um, they had camps for uh, Palestinian and Jewish children to come together. And I think that that's just like such an amazing way to, you know, I know there's lots of organizations and things that people can support, but I was just Googling that, you know, a lot of these camps are still in existence of, um, you know, where they get these kids together to do various, you know, summer activities, you know, around the lake, around, you know, the, some of them are like soccer you know, based. And I think that to me is such an amazing way to facilitate the peace process of starting with these younger kids. I think it starts around middle school and having these kids from the two different, you know, areas come together. Yeah, that's good. Have you seen the, the Banksy, um, painting on the on the wall oh, yes. of, of two of an Israeli um, boy and a Palestinian boy. Anyway, I'm sure it's on the wall, you know, a wall in the West Bank that Israel built or a wall in Gaza that Israel built. Yeah, uh, Matt's. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, there, there's a couple. There's one in Bethlehem. Um, and, in and, Bethlehem? Yeah, and the West and Bank. And that's in the West Bank. Uh, no. Bethlehem's not in the West Bank. Not technically. Well, <laughs> Is right on the border, so I okay. guess depending on which part you're in, it's Trivial essentially question. North Jerusalem. Got it. Um, but yeah, I, I think technically it is where that where that mural is. 
Um, I was just going to say, so <clears throat> I think sitting in America, in California, um, I think it's a very privileged luck <laughs> to be able to say, eh, you know, we don't really know about it enough to take sides or to do anything. And I don't disagree with anything you said, just processing the 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 conflict and the tension because specifically, I think a really big important part of the whole thing is that we- Hold on, as Americans, okay. Hold on, you're cut out. That we as Americans, as citizens of the US government, directly fund the murder of Palestinians. Um, we are Israel's biggest ally, biggest supplier of weapons, biggest supplier of bombs. We protect them. We have vetoed, the U.S. has vetoed five ceasefire resolutions in the last two weeks at the U.N. So that means the Security Council of the U.N. all voted for a ceasefire to be imposed, and the U.S. was the only government to veto just a ceasefire, not anything beyond that. So I want to be really careful when we talk about it because we are deeply culpable of the injustices that happen. Um, and again, this is not saying right that Hamas is right um, to to murder innocent people, but I I, I think we owe it um, to process for ourselves what that means and how we come to the understanding of the conflict. Um, and I know you, you touched on it, we'll probably touch on it more we, next week, I'm guessing, but the power imbalance isn't just like a little thing. It is, this is like the biggest power imbalance of any ongoing conflict, maybe in world history, right? So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Palestinians killed, injured over the last 50 years versus a few thousand Israelis. And that doesn't make <laughs> the deaths of those few thousand, but just for a perspective of this, like disproportionality is an international war crime. Uh, the Israeli government announcing that they are leveling all of Gaza is known as collective punishment, and it's an international war crime. Um, and so while it's very complicated and sensitive in the past, right, when that was happening in World War II or fill in the blanks, we could all be full-throated and saying, we don't support war crimes, right? Like, um, of course, it's complicated because our government does it too. But just noting, like, there are there are some moments of clarity and pieces of clarity that I think wherever we come down at least need to shape our understanding of, hey, this isn't really a, you know, both sides have really beat up on each other for a while, even though that's true. But, like, we can't leave it there. We have to say, and in this moment, there is a righter or wronger <laughs> way to approach it. Um, and I mean, even the peace stuff, like Emily talked about, like, that's really nice. Like, I'm guessing that mostly only um, Israeli children or Jewish children or Arab children born here can go because children aren't allowed to leave Gaza. So they can't go to any of those kinds of camps. Like, they're not allowed to get visas from the West Bank. They very few Palestinians have ever left where they were born and will die. Um, so it's like, it's not, again, right, there's this disproportionality of power that completely rewrites the whole, like, hey, you guys play nice. 
it's like it no what <laughs> one person or one party or group right has their heel on the other's throat and we're saying hey you know don't hit that foot too hard right don't push off ask nicely um so anyway i i'll, I'll stop there but uh, Yep. The, again, the power dynamics are so important to pay attention to, and they're completely in one person's favor or one group's favor, and it's the Israelis. Um, yeah. Um, yes, Sarah, is that you? Hello. I have more questions than anything. Um, I feel really ignorant about this whole thing, and I'm trying really hard to just absorb as much information as I can. Um, why would we why did we veto a ceasefire like why why did we do that why would we do that um is it just uh, please um because we have vetoed every single anti-israel motion that has ever come to the un um i think the political which i think we're getting into next week the political answer answer is because they are the U.S.'s biggest, strongest ally in the Middle East to protect our oil interests. And so essentially everything we can do to preserve their alliance and their existence uh, is fundamental to the U.S.'s wealth and power. So essentially anything that weakens Israel, we have vetoed always. And it's sad that like, it's literally at a point of genocide that we're saying, no, we, we can't stop this because we really need Israel to be untouchable and powerful and get what they need to get to exist. So it's very, I mean, it's complicated, right? Because yeah. um, I want to like just point out one thing that you got incorrect for right now, at least. Um and that as far as the bombing and of the hospital they have determined at least like i've now seen like independent like reporters have basically confirmed that it was not done by israel it was this particular time like the the last one now i don't think that the majority of the um arab countries believe that um but this particular time they do think that it wasn't even hamas it was um like another uh terrorist organization in gaza that misfired a rocket um but one thing that i feel really torn about is um i know like max what you're talking about like you, when we talk about we and I'm like, I, I hear that, but I'm also like, just like the people of Gaza are not Hamas, we are also not our government either. And so, you know, there's a little bit of like, I certainly did not, I mean, the same thing like in Israel right now, they have a very alt, you know, right government. And a lot of people in Israel also don't support what's happening in Israel. Um, I certainly don't think the majority of us felt represented by our president all the time, even though that was who was elected as president. Um, so I think we need to just sometimes be careful when we talk about who is rep even, even elected officials being representing of a people, um, because it's not 
that black and white. Um, I also think one of the things that I really struggle with is that, um, again, this is coming from hearing from so many of my friends that are Jewish. And obviously, like, every aspect of this to me is so heartbreaking. And I think that, you know, that what Israel is doing to the people of Gaza is horrific. What happened on October 7th was horrific. But one of the things that I struggle with right now and don't really even know how to feel about is the idea that, um, yes, for the last 80 years, Israel has had this disproportionate amount of power against the Palestinians. However, for the entirety of their existence, the Jews have been oppressed by everyone else. And it's like now they have this like one slice of power for the first time in history. And I just feel really, um, I don't know how to speak. I mean, I feel like you can speak out obviously against civilian attacks and and things like that but I also feel like I am trying to be so careful and I don't know where to land because so many of my Jewish friends are feeling just unbelievably vulnerable about feeling like their existence is being threatened by you know because for the it's like yes they have this power right now and probably the you know nation of israel probably should not have been created as it was but neither should america and at this point it's like what do we do because you kind of can't go back and like you mean all right aaron and i's families came here my family came over in the mayflower aaron's family came over in 1690 it's like we don't have cultural ties anywhere else and i i just remember seeing like on the news about a israeli soldier where he was like we have nowhere else to go you know he was like where do we go like where should we be we don't this is now where we live like we don't have anywhere else to go um and i feel just very torn about how to feel even Thanks, Randy. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just a little unclear. Can you be more specific as to what it means to be a Zionist? And would recommend some books as to how the Israel of today is not the same Israel as the Bible, as in biblical times. Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I'll just be really brief because we're going to talk about this more next week. Zionism, um, the word Zion is the um, Old Testament or Hebrew Bible term for the land of Israel. And it was this kind of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like a very spiritualized term that this is the land that God gave us. So Zionism is this belief that 
the land of Israel is essentially this God-given land that the Jews are entitled to, and that it is divine appointment or um, providence, you would say, they would say. Um, and it comes with this whole package of other ideas that essentially is it's religious nationalism. We're familiar with what Christian nationalism is, right? Well, there's Jewish nationalism, and that's called Zionism. And there's also Muslim nationalism. Uh, Yes, and there's lots of Jews that are anti-Zion, especially here in the United States. Um, okay, and then your other, we'll talk more about that next week. Another question was, how do we delineate between the the Israel of old and the Israel of now? Oh, a, a book? I don't have a book, uh, but it's lots, lot, there's lots written online. Uh, there you go. Talk to Emily. What's the name of the book? Jerusalem, a memoir. That's the one your father, it's 730 pages. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, it's just a historian. Okay. No. Yeah, so that's critically acclaimed. Jerusalem, a memoir. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Lots of good stuff online you can look up. Just Google the question. You could do that too. Um, other questions, thoughts, remarks today? Yeah, Marsha. I... I think from a part of a Jewish perspective is the underdog who often was a scapegoat. And that goes back to some people's memory of Nazi Germany and the millions killed uh, just because, and, and not just Jews, there's anyone who supported Jews and some Christians and Catholics. And I think for Jewish people, many of them Zionists or not, it's the thought of where do you go? Here's a tiny slice of the earth, the Gaza area, a tiny slice around Palestine. Where would a Jewish person anywhere in the world go or feel um, somebody would support them. I'm not saying this is accurate. It's that part of the emotion, probably like someone here in our country who says, if there isn't someone somewhere to give us validity and validation and support, where could I turn to? Yeah, and I, th I think, um, I just want to react to that a little bit because I feel like the question of where would we go, you know, um, when you think about the Israelis, they're mostly a modern, pretty wealthy country. And so, you know, it's not the same thing as somebody who's desperately poor, like most Palestinians, who can't, who can literally not get on an airplane and afford to fly or relocate, like, Frankly, many Israelis can. I'm not justifying like, oh, we can get rid of the nation of Israel and just cast them into diaspora and exile again. Like that would be a good choice. But I feel like the 
the, the argument they've got nowhere else to go. Um, I don't know. I'm Max, did you want to react to that? Yeah. I've heard this stated a couple of times, so I think it's important to correct. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to go anywhere. The Palestinian government agreed to a two-state solution in the early 90s, and it was Israel that pulled out of it. So there have been, and the vast majority of Palestinians don't want to kick any Jewish person out. They don't have to leave, right? That's the crazy part about all of this, is that there are factions on each side that don't want the other ones there, but the majority of the people are happy to live together in peace. So the whole the argument of, but where would we go and where would they go? They don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> like, this is just stop fighting, stop, stop, you know, keeping people who are not your religion and race in an open air prison, like stop killing children. Did you know there's 230 Palestinian children killed by the military of Israel this year before the fighting started? is the deadliest year in history for Palestinian children being killed by the Israeli military before the fighting started, right? So it's like, this is an ongoing daily thing. Just stop doing that. <laughs> and the, the two sides don't won't want to push each other out. Like, I, I don't mean to over like simplify it, but I also want to note too, the stories we hear the on the news and articles of the publications, are the stories in the country of Israel's biggest ally in the world. Like, so the news that we get and have gotten our entire lives actually is probably pretty biased in terms of what's reported and what's not reported. Um, so I just want to say like, that is such a good feeling of like, but where did they go? They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to go anywhere. Yeah. I want to make sure people can hear you online. Communication is so delicate. Let I hearing how you responded, just to add something a little different. There is hate crimes all the time against not just Jews, but any marginalized smaller ethnic group. And there is an association when I said not, where would they go, is the thought that if there's not somewhere that says you deserve to live and live in peace, then the escalation of, of scapegoat can happen anywhere. We already have seen it in America in isolated pockets because of the amount of guns in people's hands. And you see it with L you know, the, you know, if you're not the right uh, orient orientation uh, biologically, we'll kill you. You're such a threat. And I think that is more what I meant than a physical situation that you interpreted. <laughs> Complicated topics, right? I mean, yeah. Thank you, Marcia. Thanks, Max. Um... All right. Anybody else? 1128. We're going to talk about this again next week. Watch nobody shows up. Um, <laughs> uh, anybody else have something they want to add today? Uh, I just wanted to point out. Um, oh, that's Bob. Yeah, okay, that's I me. Up top. Somebody from online. Go ahead. Uh, no, one of the things that I always that I always come back to, because there's no question this stuff is so unbelievably complicated. Um, 
But I always come back to this idea that we talk about we talk about serving a God of the oppressed and the marginalized. And so when we see power differentials, I think our responsible default is always to ask harder and more difficult questions of the people who hold tremendous power. Um, and that goes in a conflict like this, but also of ourselves. There's so much about us wanting to hold and conserve the power that we have, no matter how we got it, that we don't want to come back and talk about what has happened or what got us here, you know, and it is complicated to think about what we do for the fact that, for instance, our country was founded on the pure exploitation of people that still continues to this day. We haven't figured out how to move towards resolution there because we're not willing to give up power. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of Andre Henry coming in here and going, do you want to know what you can do to start this process? Reparations. And you know, as soon as conversations like that happen, we go, well, wait a minute, I wasn't involved in what happened here. This was long, long centuries ago. Not my problem. But the reality is, in order to move forward, we have to give up power. And it's hard for us to think about as a powerful nation, um, as people of privilege, wherever each of our privilege comes from. Um, and it's really hard for me to think up giving up my power and privilege too. But I think that's the challenge and the place and why I find so much tension in this faith that we hold as people who hold so much privilege, who talk about serving a God who primarily cares about tearing down systems of power and giving that to people who have nothing. Um, and it makes a conflict like this not easy to answer. But when I have questions, I have a way that my mind wants to default. And it's easier to do looking at another situation that I have no vested interest in, like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, than it does for myself and my whiteness and maleness and straightness and relative wealth in the United States, where I actually have to make personal sacrifices. But I mean, there's so much that we can say, and I know we'll talk more about it, but I, I wanted to make sure that that power differential was so clearly addressed because I think it's so important to this conversation about Palestine and Israel too. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for being here today. We can continue the conversation, but let's uh, formally conclude our service with this joint benediction. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here. and Thank you to all of you who join us online. Go in peace. Thank you.